Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Welcome to the final episode of our Music and Popcorn series, where we are deep diving into mm. the intersection between pop music and movies. Today's Heat Rock, you know, a film and soundtrack that are straight fire, turns 20 years old this month. Stephen Frere's film adaptation of author Nick Hornby's novel about love, loss, and record stores, High Fidelity. As a record collector and music writer, when High Fidelity came out in March of 2000, it maybe hit just a little too close to home. Like the movie's struggling protagonist, Rob Gordon, I too was in my messy late 20s and early 30s trying to navigate my professional and personal life, not to mention growing record collection, alphabetized by artist, I'll have you all know. (laughs) Had the movie just been about Rob, played by John Cusack at the tail end of his rom-com days, running his Chicago record store, Championship Vinyl, alongside dysfunctional fellow music snobs Dick and Barry, I already would have been all the way in. But like Nick Hornby's other novels from this era, High Fidelity is ultimately a coming-of-age film about a man-child trying to drag himself into adulthood, partly by revisiting the top five greatest misses of his dating past. Mm. Musical wisdom and romantic truisms walk hand-in-hand in in the film, score to everything from New York post-punk to then-cutting-edge Bristol breakbeats, plus a little Marvin Gaye sprinkled in. Recently remade into a television series on Hulu, High Fidelity tries to teach us something about love and relationships via records. Or was that the other way around? Fidelity was the movie and soundtrack pick of our guest today, Drea Clark. Drea Clark does a lot of things and does them well. She's a film producer, festival creator, curator, programmer. Lake Los Angeles, The Last Time You Had Fun, and No Light, No Land, Anywhere are all her. She is one quarter of Maximum Fun's Who Shot Ya. I love that title. I want to say I came up with it, but I didn't. And she has been done with them since September 8, 2017. I would tell you she's good at mixtapes, but I can't say that because she owes me one. Ooh. Shots fired. <laughs> Drea Clark, welcome to Heat Rocks. It is no surprise to me that you worked that into my intro because Morgan tells me that every time I see her. I know, I gotta. Where's I gotta. my mixtape? I like to think that Who Shot Ya is not only the only Max Fun uh, podcast with a biggie name, but maybe the only one out there. <laughs> that's right. That's uh, that's our goal. That's our secret movie podcast goal. Yo. I need to know more about this mixtape. She <laughs> promised me this. When was I on the show? It was, a, it was at least over a year ago now. And, and a mixtape of what? <laughs> Yo, your guess is as good as mine okay. because I ain't got it. Okay. I'm going to get super early into the nitpicks from High Fidelity, but All right. Rob talks about mixtapes, but he calls them compilation tapes, and like nobody ever calls a mixtape no. a compilation tape. No, and that was one of the indications <laughs> that Rob wasn't as cool as he thought he was. <laughs> there were several other times where I was like, yo, you, you, you're not cool. We, we will certainly get into that. Yep. Yes. Drea, welcome. Why High Fidelity? When given, given the vast catalog of films about music or featuring music, why High Fidelity? Um, you mean why give myself the anxi- anxiety inducement of choosing a film about music snobbery and coming on to heat rocks with it? <laughs> no. Like, I've literally had palpitations. I'm like, <laughs> there's some meta lesson here of, um, oh, yeah, this movie that's entirely about a character who expresses himself through music and this arcane knowledge of obscure tracks, whereas I am just stone cold nerd who like <laughs> I have a friend, Tessa, who is my purveyor of music. And like if Tessa hasn't given it to me and if it was made after like mm, 2009, I don't know it. So I'm much more a film buff than a music buff um but as such for watching a film like high fidelity there's things that i recognize in that fanaticism in that wanting to know the scope of things as a way to express yourself or to share your world with people sure but there's also like many people in any fandom that i look at there's something so exclusionary about people who make it so much more about like the baseball stats of like having the one-upmanship of, oh, instead of looking at something like, 
oh, you like Adam Sandler movies. Cool. You should check out like Preston Sturgis. Instead, it's the, oh, you like Adam Sandler movies. Sure. And so High Fidelity reflected a lot of mm. what I feel about film, but did it through a medium that I'm a fan of because music moves me because I'm alive, but <laughs> I don't have the like deep knowledge of like other people. So. Well, and no pressure. High Fidelity only has 70 placements. So for, I mean, right? For a, by film standards, that's just a lot of... And when I first saw the film, I wasn't a music supervisor yet, obviously, so I had no yeah. no idea about the budget. Then looking at it again last night, I was like, Damn. oh my God. When I rewatched this with my producer eyes, I was like, I need to take a nap. <laughs> I need 15 <laughs> different people working on licensing. That's I'm right. I'm going to die. That's right. Did you watch it in theaters when it first came out? I did. I was a huge John Cusack fan. Like many white girls from the Midwest, mm -hmm. I had a crush on uh, Lloyd Dobler. Like I was, um, a, I enjoyed him and his whole thing. I definitely watched it when it came out, even though it came out at a time when I was probably seeing less in the theaters because I think I was still in school, and yeah. that's like your most insulated, I think. Um, so yeah, I remember that, and it's it's an interesting film. I like that you. Uh, it's old enough now that you could recognize like, oh, a kinship with him. And then the pullback and watching from now, I was like, oh, this man is horrible. <laughs> like my my read on it this time, like I've always had such fondness of the film. Yeah. I love Nick Hornsby as a writer and his language is so delicious and the interplay. And there's just like great sparkly characters. But I didn't realize until now as an old wizened woman looking back just like – how toxic and shallow Rob was when I was like, oh, that guy's so cool. I definitely want to come back to us talking about how the film is aged because I had, yeah. I have not watched this film in quite a while, even though I, it, it used to be something I really enjoyed and then, but it's been years and I went back to it and had a very similar reaction. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. I'm curious about first impressions and, and how about mm. for you, Morgan, when you first, did you first watch this when it first came out? Um, I watched it after, mm -hmm. after it came out. So before I even got into all the things that were toxic about him, I just didn't like his character. Mm. Um, mm. He, he had a bit of a Ferris bueller thing to me. Right, he had, right. He had a, Oh, boys that weren't cool either. Yeah. But my reaction then was, these guys have the hits. So taking all the way, everything that I thought about him personally, right. it really was a clinic in collecting. No mm -hmm. matter what they called it, mm -hmm. um, it really was a clinic for that. I don't like music snobs at all. Um, I think I think if you know music, you should pass it on and be in the be in the uh, role of educator. So that type of personality turns me off. Right. But if you are a music snob and a music co collector, this is your this is your this is your lane right here. And you know the personality. So even that may not be you, but you have certainly come across at least for me as someone who spent more time in record stores than I care to admit. I recognize those personalities yep. from around the corner because. They are slightly exaggerated, but only ever so slightly. Yep. Dick yep. and Barry were the perfect, com like the companions in the shop because a hundred percent I've seen them in every record store I've ever gone in. They also are the guys who work at every AV club in a high school. Like <laughs> I know those two dudes so well. They were so well cast, so well utilized. But I'd argue that Rob, who grows more and more questionable the more you age, if you're me and take a minute. Sure. Um, he would have been even more insufferable if he had cool friends. Like, I would way rather hang around with the Dick and Berries of the world who were just sincere dorks immersed in their world with kind of blinders on than with a pack of robs. Like, right. I mean, I like, I like Dick. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. that was just social anxiety with yeah. a hell yeah. of a playlist, you yeah. know, so you don't mind that, right? He's that's so tender. That's that dude. Jack Black, Barry. Barry's fun in small doses. Yes. Like, you would go to the store just to yes. rubberneck on his, his behavior? Sure. You wouldn't want to actually have to go to a concert with him. No, or, or drink with him. No. Because then no. you're just like, and I'm going to And even gonna, at I'm the store, it would be like going to close-up magic, but you don't want to be so close they bring you in. <laughs> right. You're like, no, I don't want to be a participant. I just want to watch what you're doing. <laughs> right. Like, if Barry ever made eye contact with me and then, like, asked me about a song, I would, like, 
oh, I, oh, what is that? My alarm, and then like have to run out. And, and I think, and I think further to this point, the people that came into the record store. This is what sort of got on my nerves about them, is that they treated them so poorly. And we all know somebody like that at a record store, and you right. you walk up to them and you hate to ask them for that one record. Yeah. And they just had that personality that it was just like, oh, my God. And I wasn't collecting records like that then. Now I am, and I recognize those guys at every record store. In terms of looking back on it, what was really striking to me about High Fidelity is how it really captures this moment in pop culture and music in the late 90s, early O's. File-sharing Napster has not blown up yet. Right. Streaming certainly doesn't exist. This is all pre-social media. And people are still making tapes for one another, right? And in a lot of ways, that dynamic, I don't want to be too nostalgic here for it, but since I lived through it, I, I identify very strongly with that, it is, there is something about it that I, I kind of had forgotten how unique, only compared to now, but how different it was just 20 years back. I guess 20 years is maybe not just, it's quite a while back, but <laughs> that this really was right on the cusp before the way in which we consume music, the way in which music is distributed, in which we talk about it, the whole top five, whatever, that worked in a time in which the number of outlets that published those things was much more limited. Now you can just do that on Twitter in 30 seconds. But there is something, like, as you mentioned, as Morgan mentioned, one of my jobs is I've programmed film festivals, which I've done for 20-some years, which is curating, which is, like, on paper, a gatekeeper position. And so I've had to think about that for so long of what that means and what I'm doing and trying to, like, both identify new talent and give them a leg up, but also thinking of the audiences and the different festivals that I work for and what maybe would be enriching for them or brand new for them, but still like in their, in their pocket and having the access of the expertise of people like that hands-onness of the record store, like the fest, the film festival is a, is a version of that, but the, passion and the kind of oh there are these like goblins that live in this place and (laughs) this is all they do and therefore i'm going to benefit from it but like you said there's that's lost when everyone um imagines themselves to be the same level of goblin so it makes the true goblins turn into that one-upmanship of i can't even just be about like oh i loved this it it exacerbates the, and I know every single thing about it, the Japanese imprint version of right. this or whatever. Right. By the way, I don't even really know what Japanese imprint means, so I'm really excited I got to use that in the sentence. We'll, t- we'll talk to you about it <laughs> right after you. the show. Yeah. I feel cooler already. <laughs> We're going to get into what perhaps has not aged quite as fine for this film, but let's start with some positivity, especially yeah. as the three of us have all revisited the film in, in, in prep for today. What stood out to you in terms of the things that you actually really liked about it? For me, like I said, it was this, uh, the, the Rob thing aside, there was such a difference of going back and I'm someone who every year more and more am familiar or am noticing the female presence in films. And this is such a bro movie and the, the space, the record store space is so testosterone laden um, that I actually was really happy to see that both Laura, who's the the sort of estranged girlfriend, Mm -hmm. um, and then her very... Her very passionate and defensive friend, played by Joan Cusack, who has like one of the best line deliveries ever, ever, ever. She's just always so good. And then even Lisa Bonet's, yeah, Lisa Bonet's character, um, the the musician that he has like this very casual one night stand. I was very worried and expecting to be upset by how the women were probably portrayed, or and I was actually nicely surprised that there was such a there was a really nice well-roundedness to them that they they had agency and they had a full you know 360 humanhood to them right uh, the same for me um i like that he was he was in the house making breakup playlist they had moved on yeah like i think uh, is that lily taylor is that her name oh my gosh she, she was, was like, one of the ex-girlfriends he tracked she's down, great yeah. and she's like i met somebody else and i was in my apartment saying period point blank <laughs> she didn't say that but i added that part 
And I liked that, like you said, the women had agency. They all made their own decisions. That is such a good point. Him. I didn't even mention the exes that he's tracking down, right. including Catherine Zeta-Jones in my number one favorite Catherine Zeta-Jones role sure. of all time. <laughs> Charlie, the like very up her own business, like and music and music savvy because she's yes. in there discussing Gene Simmons, and he's like, she said smart things. I'm like, oh my yeah, God. gotcha. This woman with her like. The, the sexy t-shirt and the tousled hair and like the cigarette and she's just postulating all I was like oh I went to school with a girl like that and man did I admire her and man was she full of nonsense yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was struck by how much from the film had really influenced certain ways I thought about music and records and I, I cataloged this number one the strategy of making a mixtape and we certainly have talked talked about this enough times on the show and I think I probably might have actually cribbed Whenever we talked about it in some previous episode, I think I might have taken my philosophy on this partly from what, he, what Rob talks about towards the end of the film about how you start off a mixtape. The making of a great compilation tape, like breaking up is hard to do and takes ages longer than it might seem. You got to kick it off with a killer to grab attention. Then you got to take it up a notch, but you don't want to blow your wad. So then you got to cool it off a notch. There are a lot of rules. Right. So you got to start with two big ones. But then you got to kind of pull back, you know, provide some tempo, take a narrative journey for the right. listener. So that I think I've I've adopted that, whether consciously or subconsciously over year over the years. I do feel self-conscious about the fact that I catalog my records alphabetically because that seems really sensible. And I don't know a better way to do it if I want to be able to find anything in the collection. But that point in the movie where Dick just so dismissively says, not alphabetically, that it. It hurts me. It hurts yeah. me in my soul every time I watch that scene. You know, I actually just used this this next clip. I showed it for my students to talk about Bourdieu's concept of cultural capital. People got to remember, I'm a sociology professor in my day job, about the difference between what we like versus what we are like. Mm. A while back, Dick Barry and I agreed that what really matters is what you like, not what you are like. Books, records, films, these things matter. Call me shallow. It's the fucking truth. And by this measure, I was having one of the best dates of my life. You love that show? Yes! <laughs> starring, um, starring, uh, who, who's starting the prison? Magoon! There's a good. That's right. And there is something about that the way in which we identify the people that we feel a kinship for. Sure. It doesn't have to be similarities in our background or similarities in, in other things. As long as we just like the same things, like that is a really solid foundation for, I think, a lot most of my friendships in my life. Sure. So sure. That I thought there was certainly wisdom there. And then last but not least, and this is the music journalist side of me, it's when you struggle to describe an artist and you end up using a description like this. Um, Marie DeSalle's playing. You remember I told you about her today? I like her. She's kind of Cheryl Crowish crossed with a um, post-Partridge family, pre-L.A. Law, Susan Day kind of thing. But... You know, um, black. Yeah. I may or may not have tried to describe many artists through that sort of assemblage at some point. I can't say. So all those things kind of jumped out like, wow, I actually really enjoyed a lot of the lines in here. Maybe sure. that's Nick Hornsby or whoever It's uh, definitely Nick it. Hornsby. Yeah. yeah. A lot of those are in the original, um, which was set in London, the book that it's based on. Right. Um, and, and it's funny, the small changes that will be made. Um, in the references, cause so much of the music changed from the book to the movie. Sure. But I agree. It's interesting because I remember in the rewatch the line about um, uh, the we are what we like, not wait, am I totally getting wrong. No, no. <laughs> we, we are what we like, not what we are like. Yes. Right. Yes. The, we are. And I remember rewatching that and thinking like, huh. In some ways, there's a profound element to that, but also in other ways – that's really limiting because he's, you know, he's saying like, call me sh and like his response, like call me shallow, but that's the way it is. I'm like, oh, he's in my head because I was about to call him shallow, but it's more the, um, there's an assumption there and maybe it comes back to my like gatekeeper, like anxiety, but that, that, that implies that like you are what you like and what you like is finite and already exists mm. rather than. You are what you like, and that can continue to evolve mm. and be informed by the people around you. Because, sure. I like that. Yeah. I can roll with that. Well, let's turn to the other side here, which is sort of the ways in which the film maybe hasn't aged all that well. And the thing that really stood out to me 
and I, you know we've all actually already have touched upon this. I was just thinking of it as high fidelity is sort of the the it's the Fight Club of rom coms. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. both of them deal with just kind of this very and a very late nineties, early OOs, you know, Y two K vision on ta- toxic masculinity before we even had the language to talk about it. Right. But it's the type of thing when, when again when I was a guy in my twenties, like those kind of films were like, wow, this is really cool. And now looking back, it's like. This is a cringe fest. There's so much suspect shit in here. So and much. I wouldn't really call Rob, he's not necessarily a classic incel, but he is definitely incel adjacent, with, especially that, with involving him. And I guess Jennifer was the, the Joel's character, the, high, the, the college sweetheart who, who wouldn't put out and, and that he just dismissed. And yeah, that, those parts are... The complexity of his character is actually a good study for when you talk about the toxic nature like toxic masculinity as a phrasing is one of those things that's like generated like a magnet just some terrible assumptions and and but there is there's what he is putting out is really toxic and in the sense that it's just as harmful to him as it is to people around him and i think so much of the discussion of that term or that cultural concern um, sounds like is just the criticism, as it should be, of spe- specifically men who are putting out these standards and judgments and actions, but also this thing of the entire journey of Rob's character is in this movie is breaking free of this sort of very specific yeah. masculine um, mindset that has kept him and his girlfriend and partner in this impasse of how they're connecting and sharing. And I, I like the idea that if you look at this of him as an anti-hero um, at face value, not like looking back now just at, oh, this hasn't aged well, which is probably more the case. But if you view it as, oh, no, he was always horrible. You were always meant to see that yeah. he starts out really horrible and is becoming more human as he goes along. Sure. He, I mean, he's horrible in, <laughs> in elementary school. Right. Right. He's that guy. He never leaves being 14, Mm -hmm. which is why one of my favorite placements is that I want candy because I think it's such a a metaphor for what he wants. He wants little kid stuff. He wants little kid relationships and instant gratification. That's it. He wants things that taste good because I think he makes one comment about one of his babes where he misses her. He misses how he tastes. And I was like, yeah, that's because you want candy. I'm not saying that this was miscast, but I do think, and this goes back to something, Dre, you were talking about earlier, is that Cusack, you know, Lloyd Dobler is one of the defining characters he's ever played. And I feel like going into a film that you know, if you don't, you don't even have to know a lot about High Fidelity, but if you know it's a romantic comedy, you're going to just assume the kind of goodwill that we felt toward Lloyd Dobler carries over into Rob, even though Rob in a lot of ways is not, I mean, I won't say diametrically opposed, but certainly nowhere near is just a generally nice, generous human being. Can you imagine being. how much Rob would mock Lloyd Dobler? Oh, totally. I mean. And so I think, for me at least, I don't think I paid attention to the fact that Rob's a fucking asshole, even though he tells us. Yeah, he does. I am an asshole. He, he tells does. us this. That's fair. And yet, because we see John Cusack and we're so used to him in a different role, we just have a hard time imagining him being an asshole. So I'm wondering how this film might have been if they'd cast someone else that would have, we would have had an easier time believing, oh yeah, that dude's an asshole. If they had cast a more sympathetic character, it would have changed. I was more. I spent most of the movie rooting for Dick. I was like, please let Dick, you know, win. And when he hooked up with, with Homer, Sarah like, Gilbert, yes, I was like, yes, Dick. I just wasn't rooting for John. And I was, I was sad at the end when, uh, when old girl got back together with. <laughs> I with was him. too. I was like, you had, you were already gone. You were already gone. You, you were got, free. You got caught it took up in you grief. Fifteen visits to get your stuff out of his place. How about that? And, and now it's all going to come back. How about that? Does the line, I'm too tired not to be with you, ring remotely true? Because that did not, I liked a lot of the dialogue. That piece is like, So n- weird. No. I, I was with her when she was like, I want to think about something else. But this, I was like, okay, sure. I get it. Because this, is, this is when they hook up literally minutes after her f- father's funeral, funeral and wake. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which, 
But that makes sense. Like people often equate like death and sex. Sure. Okay. Like a lot of right. people. Sure. The hookup is fine. But yeah. the whole like I actually want to come go home with you and I'm tired. I'm too tired not to be with you. I'm just like, are you, you though? What honestly what I got from that, I believed <laughs> right. that only in the sense that I'm like, oh, if where you currently are is living with uh, Tim Robbins character. <laughs> That does seem right. exhausting. Oh. Exactly. And Tim, it's like the, yeah. ooh, lesser of two evils. No respect All for right. Ian. Tim Robbins and the ponytail. You right? mean Ray? Ray. <laughs> Tim Robbins is this amazing character. That might be one of my, might be my favorite Tim Robbins. Roll? Roll of all time. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. It's all, of, it's of all, all his roles, yeah. out of no, all of his no work, Shawshank, whatever, no Shawshank Redemption, whatever. It's all about Ian slash Rob, <laughs> Roy, Roy, sorry. Roy. That's right. Yeah. You know, one thing that I wanted to say before we move move away from it, and I don't know if you brought it up, but one thing that I thought that the film that was so funny looking at the film last night was in that time where in the two thousands you, you've got these you know three vinyl collectors, and then vinyl went away. And now vinyl's back. So watching it now, you know, I'm, I've just worked on something called Vinyl Nation, and, and Oliver knows that. Oliver's in that. And it's all about the resurgence of vinyl and how these collectors and these people that pressed up records thought they were done because people weren't into vinyl. We got beat by CDs and streaming and all that, and now it's back. So these guys are cool again. They were very cool for a minute, then they weren't. No one was collecting vinyl, and now it's like a... A thing that you tell people, oh, I'm a vinyl-only DJ, or I've got a collection. So to see that yeah. change just in 20 years. I like on the movie deal. the movie level of it that those guys went from being the high-fidelity cool guys to the Steve Buscemi character in Ghost Worlds. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Exactly. And then exactly now him. it's like... Now um, they're cool again. Yeah. Still, now cool still again. just as passionate. Right. For the record... Steve Buscemi in Ghost World is way hotter to me than Rob Gordon right. in High Fidelity. His character I just like was to great. say that for the yeah. Yeah, his character was great. Speaking of other of other casting here, was this peak Jack Black? Because I'm not sure there was another role that I like from him better. I've not seen the Jumanji remake, so maybe that's what He's great it? in those. Did you not see School of Rock? I never liked School of Rock. Okay. And I feel like School of oh. Rock was him taking this character. It's a very making, similar yeah. very similar, making it a little bit more family friendly. But I prefer I prefer his Barry over his character in School of Rock. Um, I liked him in School of Rock. To me, he was a little obnoxious here, and <laughs> a, little. a little obnoxious. <laughs> You're sweet. <laughs> a little obnoxious. How he dealt with my man that came into the record store. Terrible. The disrespect of Stevie Wonder. The disrespect of Stevie Wonder, <laughs> and then the end. I was like, not you and Marvin Gaye. Mm. Not you. Don't and forget he he did a whole dismissive thing towards uh, uh, Lionel, right? The guy came in to get hello, didn't he? No, it was to get uh, Stevie Wonder's. For I his daughter. Called, oh, I, I thought it was Lionel Richie hello. No, no. Okay, yeah. that's why I was like, Stevie Wonder? I don't remember that. Got and then you. for them to end credits with Stevie Wonder, I was like, you owe Stevie Wonder an apology. Maybe those, that was the apology. Was, Maybe, exactly. yeah. That was the apology. <laughs> yeah. Low-key, I actually kind of agree with him. It's, kind of, it's a terrible Stevie song. What? Not the one that ended the fun okay. with. Okay. I just called to say I love you. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, n- 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 <laughs> no disrespect to Stevie. It's just no. not his best. I think um, Steiner Visions, man. Yeah. It's not songs in the key of life. Let's just it's put it not. that way. Last thing I want to think around casting, and, and y'all can feel free to add here. Laura's played by, and I, didn't, I never realized this. I spent a lot of time on IMDb with this film. It was played by a Danish actress who I'd never seen in anything else besides this. I guess she had a role in, in, in Defiance, which I don't yeah. remember her at all. And I'm going to butcher this because I don't, sp- I don't speak Danish at all. Eben Hijgel? And really interesting that I, I and I don't remember how big of a film or how big of a deal the film this was when it first came out. But this is a really prominent role for someone who is not a well-known actor in the United States for sure. her to have landed that. Isn't John Cusack? Didn't he co-produce this? So he didn't just start it, didn't he? Just... He did. Yeah, his his production arm did this. But it was Stephen Frears who pushed for even. Okay, um, that's what I was going to ask. Casting. Who pushed it? Okay, he, I think he had seen her in um, a small Danish film. Okay, and was struck. And it's it's funny because. My best friend Miranda has always been wiser than I am because you should always surround yourself with people with more wisdom. She thought that the woman who played Laura and the character was so wonderful. And I remember and I think it may be because I was like, why is this not a star? Like part of me just felt even at that stage, like I wanted to see another recognizable face. And again, in revisiting it, I'm like, oh, this woman brings so much 
depth and warmth and realism and human emotion. Like she's doing such emotional heavy lifting, especially because she's bouncing off of the sort of uh, emotionally infantile child boy. Yeah. Yeah. I love the casting of Lisa Bonet, too. I thought that yes. that character yeah. was like, you forgive the Peter Frampton, but you know, because oh I don't like that song. I don't like that jam. Also, but like like the folks in the film, I mean, I generally like the Frampton original. Kind of liked it when Lisa Bonet was performing. Oh, oh my God. That was fire. That was, that was those fire. judgmental nerds watching her and just like <laughs> melting at the knees. I'm like, yes. She's the woman wears a cowboy hat, like a woven cowboy hat. And I think she's wearing like a Canadian tuxedo, like double denim. Right. Like she makes the impossible work. Yeah. It's really what a credit. Oh, baby, I love way. Rock. Yeah. I always hated that song. Yeah. Now I kind of like it. Yeah. It's, uh, they, speak, they speak for all of us in that moment. They, so yo. Good. But she makes, I mean, and you you believe that Lisa Bonet is also in a band and yeah. she's also all yeah. that stuff, yeah. right? She's so cool that when they put that Bob Dylan, Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You, and that I, yeah. I, I'm not a fan of that jam either. I was just like, so what? It all works. <laughs> I will, Everything's cool yeah. right now. My one, like, not disapproval of the Marie DeSalle character, but to me, it pointed out even or maybe put it in sharp relief there's so few female songwriters in this film that are represented by like all the people they're name checking and in the soundtrack itself and even the song we really get from her is a cover of peter frampton and the idea of uh, that in 2000 maybe you were afforded to not have to address that or look into that Mm. but now to me it stands out so much like when you look at the whole especially the official soundtrack because obviously there's so many needle drops in this that are not going to make the actual soundtrack and so what they're doing and what they're like honing in on it's funny because it rightfully matches Rob most of all because that's the voice we're following but it does make it even more apparent the voice is you're not hearing. Right. And where you place them. Yeah. Because you put Ann Peebles and, put and also artists with that as well. Right. Yeah. And Aretha Franklin, that rock steady, which I thought you must have had a hell of a budget because I never would have put oh. her in the background. That would have been a featured right? featured use. Yeah. The rock steady and, and, and the Ann Peebles, you know, but I, I'd have to, I haven't met Kathy Nelson, but when I do, I'm going to be like, you got to tell me what the money was for this one. <laughs> you got to give that, give up the, give up the ducats, Kathy Nelson. We will be back with more of a conversation with Drea Clark about high fidelity after a brief word from some of our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked. Mission Control, this is Rocket Ship One. Come in, Mission Control. This is Mission Control. Go ahead. We have incoming, and it looks big. Can you identify? It looks like some sort of pledge drive. Affirmative. It's Max Fun Drive. That's a verified Max Fun Drive. Countdown to Max Fun Drive is initiated. Can you project a time to intercept? Based on the current trajectory, Max Fun Drive will be here from March 16 to March 27. March 16 to March 27. Roger. Rocket Ship One, can you confirm a visual on common Max Fun Drive phenomena, such as the best episodes of the year, bonus content, and special gifts for new and upgrading monthly members? We have a visual. Great episodes, bonus content, premium gifts confirmed, and more. It sure sounds quiet down there. Mission Control, what's your status? All systems go, Rocket Ship One. Just catching up on our favorite Max Fun shows so we can tune into Max Fun Drive episodes between March 16 and March 27. Over and out. <laughs> All right, Adam. Uh, Maximum Fun wants us to record like a promo to tell people that they should listen to The Greatest Generation. You want to do that? No, I am tired of all the extra work. I just wanted to talk about Star Trek with my friend. I, I think it, it would be good to like try and get some new listeners by appealing to the audiences of other shows. Like this, this will only take a minute or two. It could be good for us. We sit down for an hour every week and talk about a Star Trek episode and make a bunch of idiotic fart jokes about it. It's embarrassing. If it got out that we made this show, I think it would make us unemployable. Adam, I have bad news for you. We have tens of thousands of listeners at MaximumFun.org. Oh my god. I think I'm going to throw up. The Greatest Generation, a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. Every Monday on MaximumFun.org. I'm really going to be sick. Yo, and we're back on Heat Rocks. We're talking High Fidelity, 2000, the soundtrack. We're talking with Drea Clark. 
Let's get it. With some of the f- other films that we've talked about in this series, I paid a lot of attention to the, what the official soundtrack was. And for reasons that I can't completely ex- tr- explain, High Fidelity is a case where I actually had very little interest in the official soundtrack because the music, as we were talking about in the first half, in the film, in a lot of ways, is so much more compelling. And obviously, there's overlap, but, but there's like certain yeah. songs in, you know, in the film. They're not going to be able to, they're not going to put out like a quadruple yeah. compilation for it. Um, again, I'm not trying to disrespect the OST, but like Ann Peoples is not on there, right? You know, no. you don't have uh, Aretha Franklin is not on there. Maybe I don't need I don't need to hear Rocksteady again. But there are so many great moments in the film that just don't make it onto the official soundtrack. Right. And so I kind of found myself looking at the soundtrack like, well, this is okay, I guess. Yeah, but- I know it's a different set of rights once you go to clearing stuff for the soundtrack. And they probably like, you spent everything on these needle drops. <laughs> yes. You ain't got nothing left over. Um, De La Soul, we know for obvious reasons they probably couldn't get on there. Right. And, and is Bob Dylan on here? Yes. He, he is, and that's actually Which one, one? Of, most of the time. And that is why it is one of my favorite weird inclusions in this and in the movie at all. Because the idea of a film, especially there's so it's so 60s heavy yes. for a lot of it. Yeah. The idea, and it is a big emotional beat. It is it is right after the funeral that we've talked about, and Rob's like wandering in the rain, and this song comes on, and it's Bob's voice, which is so iconic and recognizable. And then you're listening, and you're like, now how how do I not know this? And then it's oh, because it's a. F- Bob Dylan song from like 1990 or something. Was that like, most of the time? Yeah. Was that most of the time? Yeah. To me, it was just a funny choice of out of all of the Bob Dylan that you're going to bring out of all right. of the like flex, you're going to go with this night. I just found that I love that for some reason. It tickles me. And I can endure. And I don't even think about her most of the time. You can, it's not a bad Bob. You can it's hear the rain, right? What I want to know is, and I've never lived in Chicago. I don't know if either, either of you have spent quality time in Chicago. Does it rain so goddamn much in Chicago? Yo, not that type of rain. That rain was Old Testament rain. <laughs> I swear to God, every other scene Rob's in, it is raining cats and dogs. It I'm is. like, is this in Seattle? I'm, I'm so confused <laughs> right now. Like, what's going on with all this freaking rain? That had to be some sort of... I like to think that it was just like that character on Peanuts, that it wasn't actually raining in Chicago. There was just a cloud that followed Rob around. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. I want to get to the music that's actually in the film, but... Someone put a lot of time and expense into making the OST, so I'm going to throw them a nod. We talked about the Bob Dylan song. The favorite track off of this, just the soundtrack itself, so independent of how it gets used in the film, I really liked Oh Sweet Nothing by The Velvet Underground, which mm. is, and I've, I've never really sat a lot with The Velvet Underground, sure. and this was, this is kind of a jam. Like, I'm here for bluesy, slightly funky, folky rock, like, and that, this hits all of those beats. Yep. Oh, say I love that bass line's just not joking around. Oh, it's so good. Morgan, how about you? Is there something off the soundtrack that you're like, all right, this is kind of fire? Um, I like the kinks. Everybody's going to be happy. Interestingly, mine actually made the cut. Um, the You're Gonna Miss Me right yes. at the very beginning. 13th Floor Elevator. Right? Like, it's such a great, you know, one of those things you want from a song in a movie is a portal into your character's head. Sure. And it's, it sets a tone in terms of coolness. It sets a tone in terms of energy. But it's also like you listen to the lyrics and it's this mopey um, projecting, <laughs> like, it's all you, not me. And it's, so I was like, oh, that's just what a concise character choice. And I'll say this much. I am a sucker for any film that opens with someone playing a record. And you know they're playing a record because you can hear the needle hit the opening groove, which is what yeah. they do on here. As always, I'm going to go with the most obvious basic choice. 
It's got to be the beta band scene. Oh, it's so Beta good. band. I will now sell five copies of the three EPs by the beta band. Do it. The beta band. It's good. I know. As noted, I have spent many, many, many a time in record stores, and I might have been beta banded (laughs) by the proprietor on many occasions. I'm not going to admit how often. Confession is good for the soul. You already know. Right. And the thing is, I have, so I spent a lot of my 2000s at a record store in San Francisco, my favorite record store on the planet, Groove Merchant. And because I spent so much time there, Cool Chris, who runs the place, would let me behind the counter. And so sometimes I got to pick stuff to play out there just because he's busy doing other stuff. And I have never, ever, in all the years that I got to man the turntables in the store, I've never beta banded anybody. Like everything I played, I'm like, I'm going to sell this record for Chris right now. That shit never happened for me. Oh, you did it with the intent oh, of like, I want to hook someone. Like, you yeah. know, I, this, song is, this song is fire. I'm going to play it. Someone in the store is going to be like, what's that? Never happened to me once. <laughs> That's all right. Well, it, I, I don't have Rob's touch, apparently. Yes. Or sweaters. Okay, your sweaters are real but she, crisp. But she thanks you for that, yeah. Yes, indeed. Other parts of this film that you really got into musically. And I do just love the fact that every almost every scene has some song playing somewhere. And you may not always pay deep attention to it, but just as, as sonic texture... It really does, I think, a really nice job. So you, you mentioned who the music supervisor was a moment ago. Uh, Kathy Nelson. Right. Shout out to shout, Kathy Nelson. Shout out to her because I thought exemplary job in this film. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I did like the moment when Rob decides that he's going to um, produce the band's first single or produce their mm-hmm. album. Kinky Wizards. Kinky Wizards. Because yeah. it was one of the moments where it's like we're all going to come to that point where you get turned on by, by one of the youths and you have to go on and give them their props. Yeah. And here's this crusty older dude that's like, okay, you guys are dope. And he all, all of them are annoyed that it's a good album. <laughs> that like they, they go to play the song or he walks in and Dick and Barry are playing it and he's like, who is this? And they are so glum. To admit, admit yes. that it's the annoying skateboarding duo right. um, who's been thieving from them. What is this? It's Vincent Justin. Who's Vincent Justin? It's those little skate fuckers. No way. Way. It's really. It's really fucking good. I love that. I actually think because this. In a very small way, like it culminates like many music films do with the concert. Um, but it's this small concert that's just like him DJing. And then um, I love because we've seen Barry be super obnoxious yes. and super aggressive um, the whole time. And then it's kind of a seed is planted in the middle or like the end of act two where some long haired guy comes in and is like, yeah, I have a band. You want to come sing? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'll come. And he's apparently had this sign up forever. And so then he's going to play sight unseen and like, we know Jack Black and that he can sing. But I don't think when I originally saw this, I I would have known that. I didn't know. And so there's this apprehension and then, you know, Barry and his band roll up and they're going to start. And you're like, what? What could this possibly be? This man who's been so arrogant and cruel about everyone else's choices. And then, yes, he starts singing Marvin Gaye and like with like love, like he as much as he gives the like white man veneer to it. He is like, I love this song. Dre, if you had to describe this film and, and the music for it in three words, how would you roll? Mm, I would say witty. Mm-hmm. I think there's a nice sense of wit to it. Yeah. And that actually transcends the music choices as well. Yeah. Um, um, emotional, whether or not those emotions are rightfully placed right, right. or it, headed in the correct direction. Yeah, no, 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 it is. It there's is. a lot of emotions going on. Yeah. This is in a very pop music kind of way. Um, and dude... There's a lot of, you know, like, like it or not, we may dude. be meeting all of the exes and a lot of women. Yeah. This is a lot of dude, this movie. Yeah. I believe 
Normally, we would end this episode by asking for around going around the horn and asking for people's recommendations for the next viewing and listening. But because today's episode marks the end of our music and popcorn series, and Morgan, I'd like to think I thought this was I thought this worked really well. I yep. would love to bring this back next year. Yeah, this was this was great. Shut um, up. So I wanted to throw this out instead. So I want to go around the horn and each of us talk about one or two of your favorite left field or lesser known, more obscure uses of pop music in a film. I spoke about, so for mine, I spoke about this briefly during our episode with, about Juice with Sean Fennessy. And while I've never loved Spike Lee's weird signature dolly cam shot that he uses in every film, the one time where I'm like, I'm actually kind of feeling this is in Clockers. And it's during this very climactic scene where one of the main characters, who's this young boy, is on a BMX and he's about to shoot someone. And in the background, as he's pedaling towards the camera on this dolly cam, they drop in Chaos One's Audi here. And Outside of Do the Right Thing and Rosie Perez dancing to Public Enemy, this is probably my, one of my favorite Spike Lee musical cues is just hearing out of here with that dolly cam shot. Two of my favorite moments come from uh, The Lost Boys. Mm. One of them is Echo and the Bunnymen, People Are Strange. Mm, when they totally. roll, roll into the hood, and I'm like, oh, man, somebody's going to die. <laughs> when you're a stranger, faces look ugly. When you're alone, women seem wicked. When you're unwanted, streets are uneven. When you're down. And then the second one is... Hame, when Hame's in the bathtub and he's singing that Clarence Frogman, Henry, I Ain't Got No Home, um, because it, he, he is going to go through leaving that place and coming back to that place a bunch of times. So those are two of my favorites. I'm excited that now I get two because it was very difficult for me. Um, one of them was in West Craven's Scream mm. out of nowhere. It's like the town is on lockdown and freaking Nick Cave's Red Right Hand starts playing. And it <laughs> is like, the you're like, oh my God, I would have never thought of this song, but it's so ominous. It has that bell in it. And it's like people walking around and they're like shuddering, like there's a curfew on the town. And there's, it's just, it, but it's also, it's so cool. It makes the movie cooler to yeah. have it. Like, that's honestly was my introduction to Nick Cave. You're one microscopic cog in his catastrophic plan, designed and directed by his red right hand. Sure, he's quiet. God, look at this place. It's the town that dreaded sundown. Yeah, I saw that movie. It's about a killer in Texas, huh? But the other that I will always love because it just it was used so well. And to me, it was genuinely unexpected was the end. Speaking of dude movies was the end of Fight Club when everything is about to blow up and we've you know gone right. through this whole journey. And then we start to hear a sound and then you're like, oh, snap. Is that the Pixies? Yeah. Right. And then where was where is my mind yeah. starts playing? And it's that like keening like ooh, ooh coming in and then. And then you just see these, oh my God, the drum coming and yeah. buildings in the background start blowing up. And like, they're just, it's Ed Norton and yeah. Helena Bottom Carter and they're just beaten and they just hold hand. It's so amazing. Cause what a haunting song anyway. Yeah. It's the song that starts haunting and then turns into just like a freaking great tune. And it's such a good moment. Yeah. Marla, look at me. I'm really okay. Trust me. Everything's going to be fine. (laughs) 
my second one, this is by far probably the most obscure one mentioned here. I'm not saying this to, to preener by any means, because it is, to me, the greatest Asian-American film ever made. It's also the first one ever made, which is 1982's Chan is Missing by Wayne Wang. And there's a scene that takes place in a, a senior center uh, near uh, Chinatown in San Francisco, and they're playing the Los Lobos version of a absolute Spanish language ballad classic, which is Sabor a Mi, which I think is originally a Cuban uh, ballad. And I just think the use of it in that film is absolutely perfect. It was my introduction to Sabor Ami, and it's a song that if I come across it in any other record by any other artist, I usually will probably cop it because I love it so much. Tanto tiempo disfrutamos de amor nuestras almas se acercaron tanto así que yo guardo tu sabor that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Drea Clark. You can, of course, catch her on Max Fund's own Who Shot Ya. Drea, what else are you working on right now? Yeah, I hope you're working on a mixtape. I'm working mostly, I'm concentrating on this mixtape that right. I'm making for Morgan. Got to start with two, two fire tracks. I hear I have to go. And then you got to kind of... Let it temper it. down right. and then let it get a little weird and bring it. Yeah. There we go. Um, like, obviously, I've been putting years of thought into this. <laughs> into, into this compilation <laughs> tape that you are making for Morgan. Yes. Um, I'm currently programming Bentonville Film Festival, which mm. was founded by Gina Davis mm. and takes place beginning of May and focuses on films, primarily films by and featuring women, people of color, queer stories, um, artists with disabilities. Like it's The idea is inclusion in all media, but it's really fun. Yeah. Some great films. Where's that? Um, Bentonville, Arkansas. Not okay. to brag, Arkansas. What's up? Yeah, it's great. And where can people find you on the socials? People can find me sporadically on Twitter at the Drea Clark. And um, I love reading things, so please send me recommendations of articles or songs, because I'm assuming the people that listen are big song people. I love music. Recommendations. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan, alongside Christian Duenas, who also edits, engineers, and does the booking for our shows. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and our executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Max Fun family taping every week live in the studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, where maybe you might unironically knock boots to Barry White, though. Probably not Morgan. You know what? She's not not feeling that. We want to thank all of our five-star iTunes reviewers, including Bill Chill 22 who wrote, quote, It's lit, sit back, and get lost in the fire tracks, unquote. Bill Chill 22 actually wrote a whole hook for us, but you all need to go to iTunes to see the full majesty of those bars. We had CalGal27, a self-described, quote, cornerstone fan of the podcast, unquote. I like that term, cornerstone fan, who wrote to say that they, quote, learn something new every episode unquote so do we so if you have not had a chance yet please do consider leaving us a review it is such a important way that new listeners can find their way to our little humble podcast amen we also want to thank our social media fans and family including the following want to thank kk bracken that was into the bodyguard episode with april wolf Uh, we also want to thank chris malafi for for the shout out we do appreciate that lost in williamsburg always holding us down jeb gavin we also want to thank <laughs> Warm Warmer Disco. I just laugh when I say that. Top Stitch Girl, a mutt action figure. You just wanted me to curse on air because you know my mother's listening. <laughs> um, bleep that out. Uh, bleep that out, Christian. Sidette the Mad Gorgon. We also want to thank Carl Wilson, Rob Milton, as always, for holding us down. And finally, we want to thank Josh Jenks. We do so appreciate the tweezies and the retweezies. Good to see you, Oliver. Good to see you too, Morgan. And real quick, you just mentioned Chris Melanthi gave us some love. And on his most recent episode of the Hit Parade podcast that he does for Slate's podcast family, he just did a whole thing about Whitney. So mm. by coincidence, our Bodyguard episode came out around the same time as his episode all Shouts. about Whitney. So for fans of our show, please do check out Chris's Hit Parade. For sure. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.